0: Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both The Two Popes and Honey Boy and I'm happy to be joined once again by my friend Elijah Howard to talk about these two. Elijah, thanks for joining me. Of course.
1: Always happy to be here.
0: All right. well first we're going to fittingly start... By talking about two popes, and it's going to be two Jews talking about two popes, which I quite appreciate the irony of. And I always and I thought, well, I should be a good person to have to talk about this because this movie can appeal, appeal to two Jews. Maybe he did a job pretty well. So the the the, the two popes is the newest movie from Fernan- director Fernando Morales uh, and writer Anthony McCartan, who probably wrote a whole bunch of movies you've seen in the last few years. I don't know if any of them were really all that good. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, Darkest Hour, Theory of Everything. Uh, but he also does like a lot of plays and stuff like that. And it stars Jonathan Price as Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, also known as Pope Francis and Anthony Hopkins, also known as Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, the movie kind of follows, uh, Kind of picks up right along the time that Pope John Paul dies, and the cat the church is looking for, or Pope John Paul II, that is, and the church is trying to decide who the new pope would be. There's a lot of hubbub about should it be the more progressive, forward-thinking Pope Francis, or I'm just going to call him Pope Francis. I don't want to keep saying Bergoglio. It's going to just like, I'm just going <laughs> to screw up over and over again. So even though for the most of this movie, uh, Pope Francis and the Pope, I'm going to call him Pope Francis, and the other one, Pope Benedict. That worked for you, Elijah. <laughs> yeah that's fine yeah, yeah. I think it's a little easier to keep it simple uh, but even the score yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so oh, oh, but around the start of this movie they're trying to decide who's going to succeed Pope John Paul II and there's at least some faction that wants it to be Pope Francis but he doesn't really seem to want it as much and Pope Benedict campaigns a little bit and he's uh, a little more conservative and is probably going to keep the quo quo this church as many people know I mean this isn't really news to a lot of people a lot of people probably followed the papacy more closely than I did this is probably more of an educational experience for me so uh pope benedict uh, does his thing for uh about you know i guess eight years or so in uh april 2005 was when that election happened and then yeah
1: they're about to 13 2013 so yeah about about eight years yeah, yeah and
0: then the movie skips along qu- pretty quickly to 2013 when uh pope francis is uh A little uh, perturbed and not really happy with the progress the church has made, and he's an older guy in his own right and is maybe just ready to step down and be a little more – just run a parish and live a simpler life than being a cardinal like he had to that point. But he has to go before Pope Benedict to uh, to, to express his intentions to resign, get his permission, uh, run it by him and all that stuff. And uh, this catches uh, Pope Francis a little off, or Pope Benedict a little off guard. He knows it wouldn't look great for the church if a fairly high-profile progressive cardinal drops out, because the church has been under fire a lot for maybe its lack of progress, and he doesn't want to seem like he's forcing the progressive one out. And we thus ensues just a couple of days of them pretty much just talking about their lives, and we get a little more context for the history of. Uh, pope francis's life and how he got to that point in the first place and worked his way up in the church and yeah and even though it's about two uh, religious figures just kind of talking about life and their theories about how a church should be run it it's also a pretty funny movie and very engaging for something that's just uh, largely two dudes talking in a room movie uh, elijah what did you think of the two popes
1: It's an interesting way to phrase that question. I mean it's the the only way to phrase it. But I'm going to approach it from the the literal perspective as well as the overall perspective because, I mean, the movie's title is The Two Popes and it is about these two guys and in terms of the two central performances – um, I thought it was excellent. I mean, I really thought that you know they they fall into those roles so well that Jonathan Price you know really captured that essence of uncertainty and um, and and you know searching and and uh, you know internal uh, internalism of uh, you know a Pope Francis and then Anthony Hopkins kind of captured that uh, you know sharp kind of somewhat discomforting fork tongued conservative uh you know nature of of poke benedict and um that uh you know this as a, as an interplay between those two guys i thought the movie was pretty successful uh overall i i did have some problems i think with you know with the structure of the film as well as some Choice decisions by Anthony McCarton for the screenplay. Um, you know, as far as a performance piece, it was it was quite good.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I, I would first of all, I would agree on the performances. I mean, you know, it was one of the there there aren't a ton of movies that, that I haven't seen at this point. As far as like the people, what who people think are going to get nominated for best actor, uh, I'll be seeing. I'm very excited this week to see uncut gems, as I know you are. And yeah. aside from Adam Sandler's uh, performance, which a lot of people think is Oscar worthy, this performance by Jonathan Price was uh, one of the few I've seen this year, or have, had not yet seen this year. So I was, I was kind of skeptical. I'm like, is a guy just playing a pope really going to like be something that's you know that. Uh, that worthy of all that acclaim. We just saw Anthony McCarten just write a Oscar-winning part for Rami Malek last year. That certainly, and the year before for Gary Oldman. I'm like, all right. I mean, we know we're getting here. Are we really going to get that great of a performance? And I really think we do. And that's all very engaging in all of that. And I think first and foremost, though, it was more of just like an educational experience for me. And I don't really know if you can really give Anthony McCartan that much credit for that. It's just, I mean, retelling basically how these things work. But I just found it like the process of choosing a pope and seeing how that was working, like super engaging. I don't follow the Catholic Church at all. Again, I'm a, a Reformed Jew, so I am not super religious and, and not super attuned to other religions. I, I basically going in, I knew that, you know, Pope Benedict was more conservative, and a lot of my more progressive Catholic friends really seemed to like Pope Francis and thought he was taking the church in a new direction. But that is all I knew about these guys and as far as i knew about the how the like the process of selecting a pope worked i didn't really know that cardinals were that high profile in general it's just something that i'm very ignorant of so i didn't i just kind of assumed like you know we choose a pope the smoke comes out that guy the pope comes out on the balcony and it's like all right what's this pope gonna be like And we're just going to find out, like what his what his dogma is, or uh, what all of his philosophies are, how he thinks a church should be run. I thought that would I kind of thought it was like a surprise to most people when Francis started kind of uh, going about that job in the manner in which he did and making the statements that he did. I didn't realize that like that was all the talk of the entire selection process at the time. Like. Is the church ready to go in this direction? Will they specifically choose this guy to do it? Obviously, I knew that people have problems with the church not getting with the times, but I just didn't realize there was this whole political aspect to it. So I thought that part of the movie was very well done, and I was very intrigued by it. But at the same time, I agree that like those guys had really good chemistry too. When 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 you say you might have had some issues with the structure of the movie, uh, what are you referring to? Or do you think it, it was it, it have anything to do with the flashbacks, or was it just uh, the balance of the guy this this the, the, the and the tenor of the discussions that these characters had?
1: I would say it was the way that the flashbacks were used throughout the film um, mm-hmm. earlier on you know, we don't really get any flashbacks until a a decent way through the film was when the first time we really see a flashback. And I liked how unsurrepetitiously the first flashback was kind of placed in there where we see, you know, Pope Francis as a younger man kind of dealing with... A
0: a scientist.
1: (laughs) Yeah, working as a a chemist and kind of dealing with the the doubt uh, and his, you know, and his personal doubts and, um, you know, his connection with God. And I thought that that was probably one of the most impactful segments of the film. I really liked that. I really liked his interaction with, uh, the the woman with that. He, you know, was possibly intending to marry and then his confessional with the, you know, with the, uh, with the priest, um, at the church. And, uh, you know, that that was kind of an open, a very open and emotional moment. And I really liked that. Now, as the film went on, though, we started to get prompted flashbacks and i didn't really like that uh especially the break with dirty war um because that was kind of long and excessive it felt like and and it felt like it was sort of just a necessary piece and mccartan didn't really know how to fit it in Hmm. so he just sort of had jonathan price narrate uh you know 30 minutes of the movie Hmm. basically explaining this guy's uh you know a younger a a part um in in this man's life as a younger man. And I can't help, but feel like in the hands of a more uh, versatile or, or confident writer that those scenes would have been better woven into the, into the screenplay. And I, I felt like that was one of the biggest weaknesses is that I was, I was feeling all this buildup and then the dirty war section was just kind of like a punch to the face. It just, it was like, it was like the whole film just sort of hit a brick wall. It just, yeah. just sort of stopped.
0: Well, yeah. So are you saying that you thought that like it was that maybe that have, showing that part of his life was necessary, but it could have gone about it in a different way? Or do you just think the, it wasn't necessary at all for the movie to go there?
1: Oh, no, it was definitely necessary. I yeah. mean, that is a certainly an important part of understanding his doubts and and his background. But the way that it was approached, I felt like was weak. I felt like it was just, a, you know, they didn't really know where else to put it. Um, and because they had taken so long to get to the flashbacks in general uh You know, at that point, that was really the only place they could put it.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, again, that, that was something again I knew nothing about, and I thought it was really interesting and provided a lot of context into just the way this guy approached his job. And I, I agreed, just that like, I, I, I'm, I can't specifically say what another way I would have done that was, but I appreciated that context to his life. At the same time, it was kind of odd placement in the movie because like. All of a sudden, it's just like the movie's over at that point, basically, at at the end of that. And it's like, OK, well, I don't really have a lot of time to sit with that and actually discuss it other than just having Benedict be like, oh, yeah, it's OK. But it's like uh, Benedict telling him it's OK doesn't really mean a lot to me because I don't know if that's the guy that I really want. Like, I, I would not put a lot of stock into what that guy thinks of me.
1: Well, and right. I mean, this it was I think it's largely because the the screenplay did not want to insult anybody, but when your central conceit is this idea that these two men have to absolve each other mm-hmm. of their of their pasts so that they can both move on, uh, you know they need these things lifted from their consciousness, uh, or from their conscious rather not from their consciousness. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, when they they need these things lifted from their conscious, and we have so much emphasis placed on Pope Francis's background, and then. I think there is one line in the entire movie, and it is from a, an actual taping of somebody on the street, an actual man on the street shot, where somebody mentions the fact that Pope Benedict was a Nazi. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's um, – there's really no – there's no emphasis given to him. And I feel like if you want to have that large portion talking about Pope Francis's background and his – you know, his internal struggles. And then you kind of balance that with the scene of the two of them eating pizza and Pope Francis saying, like, you know, I understand your problems. I, you know, absolve you of your, you know, he. and it's a very beautiful scene, but it feels so lopsided compared to how much emphasis we see on Pope Francis. Uh, and for a movie called The Two Popes, I would expect that there would be a little bit more balance.
0: Yeah. And I guess that might be the the one thing holding this movie back, if there is anything that like it wants to be fun and lighthearted and one that it probably wanted to elicit the reaction that it seems like it did. And a lot of people that saw this movie early on, which made me excited to see it, where everyone's like, oh, no, it's actually kind of fun. You know, you might you, you might just see the conceit and you might think, oh, wow, that's going to be a slog of a movie. And it's really not because there are a lot of lighthearted moments and fun moments in the movie. But at the same time, uh, when you sit down and think about it for a second, it's like, should I? really be enjoying this that much when uh, there's a lot that they're really not delving that deep into about Benedict's time at the head of the church. It's it's kind of reduced to a couple of montages in that, uh, here and there as they show the passage of time and it's like, oh yeah all this bad stuff happened with sexual abuse. Oh yeah, these people still aren't. They're still very behind the times as far as how we treat homosexuals, and and I think there might even be a a quick discussion or two about climate change, if I remember correctly, or or an aside or two about that. Maybe I don't. But I don't. don't, Not that there's like as much a pope is going to really be able to control with an issue like that. But like uh, they're trying to deal with issues like that, and uh, this guy really was obviously holding them back in a lot of ways, and it doesn't delve that far into it, and then. It doesn't, I mean, I don't know if it necessarily sticks the landing as far as like making it clear why he finally thinks it's a good idea to actually like endorse Francis going forward. Uh, And I I say that acknowledging that, like, I did enjoy a lot of this movie, but that was my one big thing. It's like, do you need to tell a little bit more of Benedict's story here? And at the same time, given all that we do know about him, even outside the confines of this movie, it doesn't make sense that all of a sudden overnight, just because his aide got caught doing some sketchy stuff, he's going to like turn everything over to Francis.
1: Right. And I mean, I think that this is. This is sort of funny because it's the inverse of a problem that Anthony McCartan usually has with his screenplays, which is over-explaining. Um, and I granted, I do think he kind of did that with the Dirty War part of, you know, Francis's background. I think that scene was longer than it needed to be in the place that it was. But the point is that uh, nor- normally with Anthony McCartan films, it's kind of like, come on, get to the point. We know these guys. We know this. We know the story. Uh, you know, can we can we get to something a little bit more meaningful? And in this case, I think uh, it's the opposite. They, he rushes to the point, um, and along the way, we sort of forget to actually explain why we're even here to begin with. Um, and I, I would like to imagine that most people know the story. You know, mm-hmm. most people know uh, what was going on. You know, in the Catholic Church uh, around the, the 2000s. But in a way, it feels uh, it feels somewhat intentional that the movie didn't talk about it. And, uh, that's a, that's a disappointment.
0: Do you know much about the production or have you, I have not read much about it and I tried to do a little research today and I just didn't find much as far as, uh, just the, uh, Anthony McCartan's process for how he even got the story to begin with. I mean, I guess it's, he did a play a couple years ago called the Pope that the movie Mm -hmm. is based on, but did he talk to a lot of people that were close to the popes to like actually find out how much of this is really true to life and true to conversations they really had?
1: Um, You know, that's a good question. I'm not really sure.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't blame you uh, if you don't know much. I was just curious if you had because I hadn't, and it just seems like the Vatican is a it can be a secretive place in some respects. So I was wondering, well, like, I was yeah. wondering what kind of access he actually got because I thought I, I was like cur- I, I was just generally curious. Like, is this like one guy's interpretation of it? And I wouldn't be opposed to a version of a movie like that where he's like imagining what something like this would have happened. But I was just I was just curious. I didn't realize how much of this actually like went down this way and how how integral Benedict was in uh, making sure that Francis was his successor i i I really was i was just kind of curious i didn't really know uh everything that went into that because i mean i think if if that is how it happened it would be really interesting to actually see what made him really come to this conclusion because i mean these are old dudes presumably very set in their ways and uh for benedict to kind of undergo that kind of uh um awakening or not even. I don't even want to call it that because I don't know if he necessarily became progressive in all of his positions to that point. But to at least recognize that that was what the church needed. I mean, I think it's that's a very important thing that the movie, like you said, yada yada, is it a little bit, you know?
1: Yeah, it definitely does. yada. it definitely does yada yada it. And um, I think McCartan. He sort of made a name for himself, you know, doing these biopics. Um, I, I actually, I think that's pretty much everything he's he's ever done.
0: <laughs> and he has apparently, he apparently, has an untitled novels, an but... untitled John Lennon Yoko Ono film in development, apparently, which I didn't realize till I just looked at his Wikipedia. So stick to his comfort zone. Oh lord. <laughs>
1: um, I, I wonder if it's a a, a matter of overconfidence. Mm-hmm. You know that he's he sort of just built this up over the years of the, the his process. And it's – maybe it's, you know, with the way Bohemian Rhapsody went, this is, we're sort of now getting to the plateau of his, uh, you know, abilities as a, as a hands-off uh, writer. Because I, I don't think there was a whole lot of – I'm sure there was research done. But I I would venture to say that Anthony McCartan probably did not speak to Pope Francis or, uh, you yeah. know, the former Pope Benedict uh, about – About anything that went on in this, he may have read, you know, I'm sure there's probably there are probably written accounts of things that happened. But my guess is that this was mostly conjured from an emotional standpoint, which is largely the way that McCartan does his his films Mm -hmm. Um, and. You know, theory of everything that can work for you. Bohemian Rhapsody and The Two Popes, where the person is a lot you know, the people in, in focus are a lot more dear uh in terms of, you know, their emotional meaning to a lot of people. Uh I think that might come back to bite you. Hmm. So
0: I can certainly see that. And like I, I don't know. I mean, I I I did really enjoy some I I I feel like I'm being pretty hard on it. Like I I really enjoyed some of the some of these scenes and just I mean I I did get a kick out of some of this stuff. I mean, like, I guess, I mean, did you, did you watch the young Pope also? I did. So, I mean, Um, there's something about just like mixing such a formal background like this, a a backdrop like this with a, with a Pope doing, uh, modern things, whether it be like a nun playing basketball or a Pope in a bar watching a a football match. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to get a kick of that stuff no matter what. And that's it. I'm just an easy mark for that kind of humor.
1: That's where the film was the strongest. I Mm -hmm. think for me was, um, you know, Jonathan Price's sort of fish out of water moments.
0: Trying um, to book a flight.
1: <laughs> right, right. Trying to trying to book a flight over the foot in the opening scene. Yeah, um, I thought that was, uh, you know, really that th- those are some of the best parts. Um, and I liked, you know, I even liked the other side of it. I liked seeing, you know, just how how. St- the, like the strange, the idiosyncratic rituals of Pope Benedict of, uh, you know, him eating dinner completely by himself, even if the other person that he's with is eating the same thing, and, and, uh, and watching watch, TV, make,
0: making them eat matzo ball soup. Basically. Right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was like, that's, that's just matzo ball soup. Yeah. And watching, you know, like a, basically a German kids television show <laughs> mm-hmm. for fun. Like, um, you know, you definitely get a sense of how weird these guys are, uh, or how human they are, I should mm-hmm. say rather and um i think that was a that was a strong uh you know moment for the for the film but uh
0: yeah and i and i think you you that stuff is very enjoyable and i but i also i i don't want to be like make it seem like i was all negative on the rest of the movie even if that was the stuff i found myself enjoying the most where you have those weird idiosyncrasies of these guys because i mean i I did enjoy hearing some of their discussions i i I mean even as someone that's like a huge outsider to the church i do find it really interesting just the way the catholic church functions i feel like it's i mean it's it's a little more clear just like where they take their leads from given that it all kind of comes from the top down in that regard and uh just to hear these guys kind of just talking about it and whether they need to change and how the church is dying just as a young person like i have catholic friends that like go, really the church has just lost them and it might be some from their political views it might be some for just how much how much they think it's driven by money more than anything else and to hear the, to hear these guys talking about it and uh i i did i did find that pretty interesting and having to it, benedict like having to confront that issue of like it, it, it's like just an undeniable fact that you like young people it's like they're just leaving the church and that and him having to confront that and reconcile that with all these things he's believed his whole life and francis having to put him on the defensive about it i, I did find that pretty enjoyable even if they're just aspects of these guys stories that like the movie could have filled in. And I mean, I guess it's, it's already a. Uh, I mean, it's already over a two hour movie, I believe. And I mean, there's only so much they can, they can put in there, but I mean, I don't know. I think I enjoyed the way the movie looked, the way it moved, the, these, their depiction of these guys enough that I probably could have said, I probably could have made it through two hours and 30 minutes if it meant we got a little more of this stuff. So.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like my, some of my feelings about where the screenplay was going also had to do with, uh, not necessarily what was, what was, what was not shown, you know, what was shown. It was just, you know, if you want to have a, for example, you want to have a screenplay about an event that's happened a little while back and have it be relevant to today. I, I totally appreciate that and understand that. Um, but you know, I felt like there's a scene early on where they're sitting in the garden and, uh, they have this whole, Todd, ta- they have this whole argument about putting up walls and I was like, oh, come on. Like, hmm. you know, that's a little on the nose. Even if I totally agree with what's being said here, uh, I think they say the, the phrase putting up walls like 10 times in the span of two minutes. And I'm like, that's, you know, you, you just compare hmm. this to other movies that are, you know, from today that are about things that have happened in the past that want to make comments about the way that the you know world is going today. Uh, most films aren't gonna say two times in, or you know, t- ten times in two minutes. <laughs> something about putting up walls. Like right. it's it's a little on the nose. And uh, I think that was another thing that I felt like this, this it could have done with less, even though I'm saying, you know, there was stuff that was missing. I feel like in terms of what was there and the emotional content that was there, I feel like this was a little bit maximalist. It was a little bit extra. Hmm. And I didn't I didn't really feel that it, it needed to be that way. And, may you know, and look, maybe, uh, you know, I don't I don't suppose that I, I don't know, I don't I don't, you know, claim that I can, you know, speak for Catholics whatsoever But Why, 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 why that, not? <laughs> right, I, I'm not qualified But I will say That something that I appreciate About Catholicism Is the Is the showmanship I do think Catholicism is the most uh, Is Well It's the most Flamboyant And theatrical Of Of the wide uh, Western religions I think uh, You know I would say that Especially Within Christian denominations In the United States Catholicism is, you know, short of Pentecostal, perhaps, you know, they're the ones, Catholics are the ones that have the most theatricality to their to their rituals and to their, their way of life. I mean, you have these big, ornate churches with, you know, all these painted scenes and gilded walls and you have people wearing robes and hats and, you know, songs and psalms and a lot of the stuff that you, for example, don't find in Protestant, uh, you know, churches, for example. And I'm sure somebody maybe will be a little disappointed that I said that, but the the fact of the matter is, I think it's hard to dispute that. I think that you know, Catholicism has a showmanship to it that not a lot of other Christian denominations or or Western religious groups in general have. And um, I think maybe if that's the interpretation that you want to go with for this movie, why this movie was the way it was, it had almost a a a catholic theatricality to it it was almost like watching a catholic play or something and if that was the point then then i get it and i don't want to tell you know a catholic audience well you're wrong for disliking this (laughs) or for or for liking it rather
0: yeah i mean the the movie's pretty aware of the uh, of what you were just saying i'd say about just the the ostentatiousness of the church in those regards because it makes it makes a point of showing how aware francis is of that too and how little he cares for it and so I, I, I just enjoy seeing that in quieter moments. Him just like shrugging a lot of that off, and just being like, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't need that, or I don't need to wear any of this stuff when I come out for the first time. I. I, I don't know. I I, I I certainly thought that like it at least kind of used that stuff in a way to inform that character, inform us about that character a little more, which uh, which, which I appreciated. Of
1: course, yeah, I, I get that, um, and it's just it's hard to balance that with you know. I think Fernando Morales is a great director, but I think he also has showy uh, tendencies sometimes. You know, City of God was a very um, a uh, spastic movie. I like City of God quite a bit, but it is definitely a hyper stylized movie, you know. And I think this movie, you know, it's 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 very pared down compared to that. But it's, you know, it's still you get some of Frando Ellis's, you know, some of his stylistic choices, and sometimes they work really well. I think the dancing at the end. I think you know, hmm. uh, you know, that little dance scene was really uh, was really heartwarming. I think. Uh, playing dancing queen while the uh, papal elections are occurring that's just a weird choice and uh, I don't know I, if I agree with it you know
0: i I, I enjoy that stuff again that's just, that that's just me and putting putting stuff like that right next to something as formal as a papal election like that that's gonna get me every time but I mean I, I I can see how that might be tonally off-putting for people at the same time I can't I can't disagree with anyone that has that same criticism as much as I get a kick out of it
1: Of course, yeah. I just think you know it's very hard for me to break immersion. But when a film has been very serious in the first few minutes, and then all of a sudden it's not serious, I don't. You know, it's tough. But it's it's the high wire act that any film is. You know, its tone is the hardest thing to nail. And I think uh, you know, I I generally think the movie gets it right. I think it's funny when it should be funny, and it's not funny when it shouldn't be. You know, funny.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, it, it, there probably just should have been more of the not funny stuff, I think, would be uh, my re- very reductive way of putting it. Just to, like, I still think I would have gotten a kick out of the funny stuff also, though, if they even if they had gone deeper on some of those other things we discussed, you know?
1: Of course, so that's, that should be the title of our podcast for this week, more of the not funny stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, uh, we're, we're going to talk about Honey Boy soon, and uh, that's, I'd say that's more not funny stuff than funny stuff. Definitely <laughs> uh, not funny uh, stuff, uh, but um, I think it's
1: a fitting film to pair with this one, and I guess we'll talk about it when we talk about Honey Boy, is, I mean, these are, they're two biopics about two people who are, you know, two big personalities that are kind of – we see different time <laughs> periods in these people's lives. Um, I just – you know. Th- so I definitely think there's a – there's something sort of spiritual and religious about both of them. Uh sure sure i think it makes a good double feature
0: uh are you do you have anything else you want to say about uh just these performances in general um i think it's it's pretty cool that like an actor like jonathan price that has been around for a while and i don't know if he's ever had an oscar nomination like got a meaty part like this and it seems like he's probably going to get nominated for an oscar but it's just such a loaded category this year uh did you have any other feelings on him or anthony hopkins before we uh moved on
1: um do I have any more feelings about? It? No, I mean I think um, I think uh, you know the performances were great. I think the the performances all around. I, I would want to say also that uh, oh, why can't I remember his uh, Juan Minuin, I think is his name. Plays the uh, plays the young Bregoglio, plays the young Pope.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, I thought he was really good. I thought he's a very expressive actor, um, and I had seen him before in Zama, which came out a few years ago. Okay. Um, it's an Argentine film. And um, I liked him in that, too. And uh, I thought he was he he really lended a lot of uh, gravity to the flashbacks. And I think without him, those scenes would have felt even uh, even less useful uh, more or less in place so uh, to have that to have two powerful actors playing the same guy in two different time periods um that was a good uh, a good casting call
0: yeah and i guess I, I i yeah i didn't have i didn't have a ton else to add i would just say like i'm just it was very impressed with the performances and i think again like i said earlier that probably did it for, really made it a worthwhile experience for me more than anything all, all the criticisms we had aside they were very charming and like i mean I, I I don't know if I, mean, I guess it's on the performer and on the writing that Anthony Hopkins still made such a guy that's probably pretty unlikable, pretty charming at the same time. Uh, I, I I don't know if that's a good goal, a, a good result or not uh, based on. What Pope Benedict actually is, but regardless, he, he, I, I was aware of Pope Benedict's shortcomings, and I was still somewhat charmed by the guy. So take that for what you will. And I, and as far as Jonathan Price, like I said, yeah, I, I double checked myself and fact checked myself right there. Never had an Oscar nomination, so you know it seems like that's just such a a big category at the oscars this year between all the different people that are like in talks to possibly be nominated so i mean it's a competitive field but i would be very happy for him because he's obviously been a guy that's been around for a long time and done a lot of impressive stuff and good for him if it happens any other final thoughts on the two popes before you sign off yeah. no i think that that about covers it yeah so i mean it, it seems like we both recommend that for two people you obviously have to, throughout the, all the holidays to see it on netflix if you are looking for something to do with your family while you're hanging out with them I mean I think there are worse options out there because it's not as uh, tough of a sit as you might think if you just uh, hear the uh, hear the synopsis or the uh, plot description so uh, definitely uh, check it out if you have some time Uh, our criticisms notwithstanding, I feel like we can recommend it but I want to move on now to Honey Boy which is the uh, new film from director Alma Harrell but writer slash star Shia LaBeouf who uh, wrote this movie that's uh, uh, very uh, very autobiographical About his time as a uh, young kid uh, hitting it big in showbiz, but having to deal with uh, an an abusive, emotionally manipulative father uh, throughout much of that time, and the problems that that left with caused in him as he was a a younger adult still in the entertainment industry. And it stars uh, Noah Jupe as the younger version of him. He's not, it's not autobiographical in that he's actually calling him by name, but it's everyone acknowledges that it is an autobiographical movie. Uh, Noah Jupe plays the younger version of Otis, who Otis Lort is the character's name and uh, Shia LaBeouf, uh, plays his father, James Lort, and Lucas Hedges plays the older version of Otis, but we, most of the time we spend with him is, um, in rehab, basically, and we, we, we see, uh, him kind of on the sets of movies as a young child and also as a young adult, but then having to go back and, uh, live with his father at a, basically at a extended same motel, and that's just the way he's going about it, because his, his mom is out of the picture somewhat for, uh, reasons that are somewhat unclear at the same time. Uh, Elijah, it's kind of funny because, you know, I think the last time we did a podcast, it was on The Lighthouse, which was like after watching it, we were like, wow, how does this movie exist? And here it was like from the moment of the press release, we're like, wow, is this movie going to actually exist? (laughs) Because it just seemed like such an incredible thing to have uh, Shia LaBeouf, who's such an enigmatic person and uh, and a very talented performer, though. It's like he's going to write a movie about himself where... Lucas Hedges is gonna play himself and he's gonna play his father and this is a movie that's gonna like actually happen. And I think everyone was like a little bit of disbelief. To me, it almost looked like a joke when it came out. I was like, But Lucas Hedges is like a pretty legit actor, so we'll see if this is actually happening. And uh, sure enough it happens. And so I guess just from that starting point, I mean something that like seemed pretty crazy at the time it got announced, but then obviously it had fairly positive word of mouth after it played at festivals. What was your initial reaction to like learning this was gonna be a movie? And I know you really liked it, so were you surprised by how much you liked it based on like your expectations for such an interesting conceit given the person that was the driving force behind the movie.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, Sh- Shia LaBeouf is one of those people who, uh, you know, he's, he was a child star and it's pretty much, there's just two ways child stars go. I mean, that's either they burn out or they, you know, they, they, they age kindly. Um, and the, the latter, very rarely happens. And I think what is even more unlikely is, is Shia LaBeouf's own story, which, which is, is kind he, of both. He did burn out. I mean, he really did. And um, most people don't get a chance to come back from that. And uh, so I, I remember reading, you know, when they people asked him about, you know, the screenplay and, you know, what where it was coming from. And uh, I, I, I remember the way that he described it was like he didn't think, that the screenplay, like he he was not intending to help anybody with this. There was no greater messaging. It was entirely for him to get it off his chest. And you know, if you want to call it selfish or se- you know self-absorbed, or whatever. But I think at the end of the day, that's how you create a good piece of art. Is you is you talk about your experience in the only way that you know it, which is your experience, and you don't try to make it necessarily a great worldly piece of art. And uh, I think that's where the film ended up being the most successful was because it you know, it, it didn't get too wrapped up in trying to make this more than it was. And yet it still, I think, had a very powerful message. And I think it still was successful in telling a very uh, uh, you know, emotional story. And so uh, you know, my, my thoughts about it at the time when I heard about it was like, oh, it's, you know, interesting. And then, you know, slowly the more details came out. And, uh, when I heard that Alma Harrell was going to direct it, I became really interested, because uh, she had not directed a, a narrative, you know, fictional narrative feature at this point. Um, but she had made a documentary called Bombay beach that was just totally wild and out there. And, um, you know, it made sense given what we already know about Shia LaBeouf is like he's kind of a weird dude. So it would make sense that he hires a weird director who makes weird movies. Um, but I didn't think that they would necessarily go all the way in making the movie as sort of surreal and as strange as it was. So to uh, to actually sit in the theater and watch it and see that it, it's like, nope, they did it. They made a weird movie, a weird autobi, a weird biography. Uh, you know, a very atypical biography. I was very happy to see that.
0: Yeah, and I guess I I really liked the movie too. Though I think I, I might have just been caught off guard. I should have known that someone as weird as Shia would have pr- not produced something straightforward. But I guess I as someone who's like very interested in entertainment that is about the entertainment industry, I thought, well, huh? We haven't had a, like a lot of stuff lately about like child actors and how that process goes. And I think I, I mean. I, I was pretty familiar with his story because of that infamous Vanity Fair cover with Shia about ten twelve years ago, the next Tom Hanks cover story, uh, and so I that where he went really in depth about his dad and his history and being dragged to Dodgers games while his dad just like worked as a clown basically and and stuff like that, and I was like. I, I, I always remember that story, and I was like, huh, that's really interesting and I'm curious to find out more about it. So I thought this movie was gonna be more of actually like taking place on movie sets than it actually was, especially how it kind of opened up. So I guess I was almost like caught off guard and I was like, I wasn't expecting something as like trippy and weird and as we got. And so maybe that wasn't exactly what I was hoping for when I went in, but at the same time, I was like really appreciative and felt very fortunate to be watching a story like this because it just I, it, the first, the first word that came to my head when I left the theater, trying to think of how I would describe it, was like it was just very raw, and it felt like it, like all, sp- it, it felt like it all spilled out of his head. And I, w- I haven't re- re- really watched any interviews where he's talked about the process of writing the script, but it felt like the kind of thing where, it, to me, it wouldn't surprise me if he wrote it in like three days or something like that, you know. And it just seemed like it, it was like pouring out of him. And I'm like, all right, like this might not have been what I was hoping for when I went into the theater, but like I feel like I'm really seeing inside this guy's head, and I really appreciate that, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought that was, that's, I mean, the raw is the best way to describe it. I think, uh, you know, there's, it's, there's no frills. There's no, uh, there's no extra, extra set dressing. I mean, it is very, uh, it's a very, it's, it's uncomfortable. I mean, there's a lot of scenes in the movie that are just really not fun to watch.
0: Um, I think but, I mean uh, I think a lot of credit that goes to Shia Like I mean that could have almost been like a that I mean it, it's one thing to write a movie about this but then like play your dad I mean that that's like it's kind of wild and I I mean I think he pulls it off in in a way that makes it all uncomfortable in like a way that it's meant to be.
1: Yeah, I mean it's I think it's it's um it, to me I I thought that you know obviously the biggest success of this film was the acting jobs was the, uh, you know, was all, all three of the lead actors and, um, the way that they blend into the roles. I know deep down that I'm watching a movie about Shia LaBeouf, even if he's not, uh, you know, in there by name, but he is playing a character. And at the same time, I don't feel like when I'm watching Shia LaBeouf's character that I'm watching Shia LaBeouf. I feel like I'm watching his dad. (laughs) Uh, And I don't know his dad. I don't know his dad at all. But it's such a different and, uh, you know, it's such a it's such a strange role for him. And he he falls so perfectly into it. And Noah Jupe falls so perfectly into him as a as a preteen. And Lucas Hedges falls so perfectly into that character as, uh, you know, as a young adult that you it's hard to you know i want i if, if part of me wanted to separate it to be like okay hold on take a step back you're watching shia labeouf just, you know just you know you know that that's shia labeouf but it never hit me like that i never felt like i was watching uh you know it, it was it's it was surreal almost well, how much they blend into the roles that's the thing about shia
0: labeouf like i don't know if i shia labeouf i said it's a it's not labeouf i don't know why i kept saying labeouf but one of the things that's so impressive about him, and I might have, I might have mentioned this whenever I did a podcast on the Peanut Butter Falcon, or I, n- I never actually did one on American Honey, but those have been like two of the things that he's had come out in recent years. Where it's like, look, this guy's like a really good actor. All all off screen stuff aside, like he can really do it. But I, guys like him, and uh, maybe like maybe it's not fair to other actors, but he almost gets bonus points in my book because I know just how 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 differently how how wired he is differently from other people. And you've never seen him give like a normal sit down interview in the last like five years like he, he he's just a different dude so for him to like disappear into roles especially one like this and to not feel like you're watching him it just seems like it's like a higher degree of difficulty to me it might not be true but it is at least for me as a viewer to like not see him as that anymore and it's like wow that's like a big accomplishment and i and i, I had the same feeling as you where it's like maybe i did step back every once in a while and been like wow he's really pulling this off but at the same time i was able to watch it and just feel like i was just like watching this like this ticking time bomb of a guy that could really go off at any point it's like really uncomfortable and he gives off that aura even before like the scene uh, even before he lays a hand on otis you know it's just like the way otis acts around him which is also a credit to noah droop where it's like wow like this guy is probably like there's probably something wrong with him too like the way he or or i I shouldn't even say before he puts a hand on otis before he puts a hand on uh clifton collins as his big brother uh like it's like the way he's talking about him and the way the way Otis is talking about him, you know, there's like something off there and it's like very, very uncomfortable even without like there actually being any physical conflict at that point, which is just a testament to the writing and the acting.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that, the, you know, the tension that's built that way and the, you know, this idea that like you said, he's like a t- ticking time bomb and uh, you know, just it's in his cadence, um, which In a way, you know, you go back and then now after you see the movie, you watch, you know, Shia LaBeouf in interviews and you like you could actually sort of see that same cadence in him in interviews. He is kind of jumpy. He is sort of like he does just as a guy. He just sort of, you know, like somebody will ask a question and before they even finish the question, he'll be sort of like on top of the answer already. And he's a very commanding present. You know, it's interesting to see that translate into this whole other person and and you know how you just feel very off put by him playing this father character by you know, where who it, we take that as sort of a quirk of of Shia LaBeouf as as he is now and then when you transpose that onto somebody who's a father who's supposed to have responsibilities who's supposed to be you know uh, you know a leading figure in this kid's life and suddenly it's not very funny anymore <laughs> suddenly it's not very uh, there's there's nothing charming about it it's sort of gross and yeah. weird and i guess
0: and i guess it's a good example of just like how generational trauma can to shape how a person grows up the the person you grew up to be and how that makes sense. If, if, if this is a, a, at least a somewhat accurate portrayal of what his dad was like, then you definitely understand how he is the way he is and why he's had some of the troubles that he has and that he's having in the Lucas head as part of this movie. But I, I want to mention, go, go back to Noah Drew for a second is, and we're talking about transformations because I, I was a little taken aback. I mean, I saw him in uh, Quiet Place and, and I guess he, he was in Ford versus Ferrari too. didn't have a ton to do in there. But like, I mean, he's a very f- good actor in those, but he, then and then I watched this, and i then I watched an interview, and I was like, "Whoa, that kid is like really British." and I and I was like wow I mean he's just very talented that he's just able to like convincingly transform into a version of Shia LaBeouf who is just like one of the most recognizable child actors of the last 20 years and, not, and I don't even mean just his face I just mean his his mannerisms and his mannerisms and, exactly uh, I mean ha, ha, how many times have we seen the the uh, no, no 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 YouTube video which is more something that the Lucas Hedges character has to do but also just the way that he uh, just the way that he interacts I mean in the way he the way he is if most people are our age probably have some memory of like going of him going all the way back to even Stevens where he was playing like a a wacky kid but then I mean not long after that he's starring in different kinds of movies but he's still always kind of shy even if he is a good actor and it's like to convincingly become him when you're just like an 11 year old British kid is is it a pretty impressive thing to me
1: yeah definitely and uh I think I'm sure that when Noju was preparing for this role I'm sure he watched even Stevens because that is the right era um and freaks and geeks you know when he was on that episode of Freaks and Geeks and, you know, just his his prior television appearances, it has, he has that right, you know, that right attitude where it's just, uh, you know, it's a little cocky, it's a little, a little arrogant, but it is very, uh, vulnerable.
0: Yeah. It's nice to see him stand up to his dad some too. I mean, like you can imagine like a a kid being like that. If he takes a certain amount of, uh, has a certain amount of ego through what he, what it's, he seems to have accomplished at that point and not just taking all the shit, which is nice to see too.
1: Right and I mean the, the film is a lot about temporal conversations which I I really like when movies do that when basically when characters talk to one another across time and I don't mean literally I'm not talking like Interstellar you know tapping the bookcase kind of thing I mean where a character Says something, and it sort of it overlays with another scene where an older version of the character is experiencing something, or you know what I'm saying? Or or someone's um, listening
0: to a tape of a conversation that had a different time, and then all of a sudden right. you're going back to that.
1: Exactly, yeah. And these sort of these t- intertemporal conversations, and I mean, there's just it, the Alma Harrell and Shia LaBeouf use them in such a beautiful way in this movie, where uh, that scene where Noah Jupe goes back to the, she goes back to the motel. And uh, his dad is like, you know, passed out on the couch watching the scene that he just recorded, you know, on the television. And he says all this stuff and it's clear that his father is like not listening and it's not really what he said. It's what the older Otis, what Lucas Hedges imagined and wanted to have said at that moment. Right, right. Um, You know, and there is just it's uh, you know, you don't get a scene like that without everybody being in perfect lockstep, without the writing being perfect, without the direction being emotional and restrained, and without the actors knowing, uh, knowing the characters they're playing inside and out.
0: Right. No, for sure. And I, I, I yeah. And I guess when you put it that way, cause I mean, I, at first I was like, huh, this is like getting really, really trippy when I was watching it the first time, but I, I definitely have a lot more respect for it. Just thinking back to it now and hearing you put it that way and just how that re- everything kind of does have to, like, to even make a scene like that work as much as it does, you, a lot of people have to be uh, doing their jobs right. Uh, what did you think about the the Lucas Hedges side of this film, though? And because that's, like, I mean, obviously it's, like, very intense and it's uh, pretty vivid to see him uh, on the movie set in the first place because, like, I mean, I think of even Stephen Shia LaBeouf. I also think of, like, Transformers era. No, 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 Shia LaBeouf. And I think of, like, uh, the current indie film guy we've gotten in the last few years, Shia LaBeouf. And LaBeouf, gosh, I can't, I can't be consistent. And... Uh, and, and so, but like, I mean, it seemed like he was really evoking that, uh, 2006 era Shia pretty well when he's on that movie set at the beginning, but all of a sudden then, then we're watching him in rehab and having to be like really reflective. And how do you think the movie kind of balanced, uh, balanced those two, those two sides of things?
1: I liked it a lot because I feel like Lucas Hedges, you say balance, and I think that's a great. Word to use. I think Lucas Hedges is the fulcrum point. He is the middle of that balance. You've got, uh, you know, Otis as a child, uh, or Shia as a child, if you will. And I think on the other end, you have, there's a reason that Shia LaBeouf chose to play his own father in this movie. And I think it's because there is an internal panic uh, and an internal fear that he is going to be like his father. And that is, in a way, you know, that's the that's the conflict of the film is we just don't know how this kid's going to turn out and so lucas hedges balances that perfectly he balances the reflectiveness of you know his childhood and looking back and realizing there was trauma with his fear that he is going to be that same man when he grows up
0: yeah and like i don't think with with a with a role that specific like i almost get why he would play him like how can he even like how, how could he convey to anyone else what what that guy was like, you know what I mean? Like to to really to really get it right. Like I don't I, I don't even know how he. could... I mean I, I I take that back. I mean I'm sure maybe other actors could pull it off, but like it's gotta seem like so hard for him to be like, how can I actually like when when I so vividly went through all of this in my life, how can I really actually uh, expect anyone else to like totally pull this off in this way? And I guess it's a very I don't know. It's just a very big flex to take it upon himself. And I thought he uh, I I definitely thought he pulled it off, but also I mean I, I guess it was it was interesting to, like see the it was interesting to see Lucas Hedges like also like actually be confronted with all that stuff. Cause I mean, I don't know, it's, it, 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 it was almost like he was in rehab for anger management as much as he was for uh, alcoholism, which is what he went to rehab for in real life. Uh, but like, I mean, to see him like how he would react, how he would be put on the spot with those kind of things and is forced to be confronted with all these issues that he probably really never took the time to really deal with because he didn't have one he didn't have the support system there because he's with his dad and I don't really know his story and why he wasn't with his mom growing up but he he clearly wasn't all that much and he's just like having to like be a working guy like in working and then dealing with a dad at home he probably never really had the the reason to or the time to or the people around him to fully process like anything he went through and I thought Lucas Hedges like bore the weight of what that must have been like very well well.
1: of course yeah and i mean i think because th- there's kind of an adage with with rehab where it's like you're not in rehab because you're an alcoholic you're in re- you're in rehab because you have ptsd or something else and i think the film got to the heart of that really perfectly um that he's in rehab because that's what the court told him he needed to be because of his alcoholism but at the end of the day uh his doctors uh, laura san giacomo and you know martin Starr. I was really happy to see Martin Starr just pop up out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that they understand why he's there. They get it even if he doesn't necessarily get it at first. Um, and the film is him understanding why he's there. It's him coming to terms with why he does what he does and why he is the way that he is. And, uh, you know, so that to me, Lucas Hedges – not only bore the weight of that and being able to, you know, externalize that realization, but that is the narrative arc of the film. Mm-hmm. Nothing really happens with Otis and his father as a kid. It's just sort of these little episodes in the course of a couple of, you know, months or weeks of his life.
0: Yeah, um, the thing about them, like going to smoke marijuana when he's like growing pot off the side of the highway or whatever. I actually think that there might that might have been like a shred truth of that. If I remember, giving, Shia giving interviews where he's like, "Yeah, I smoked since I was 12. But yeah. at the same time, like that is like it, it is it was pretty surreal, just like the way they shot that to to watch him watch that because I think that leads right into the uh, right into like the scene where Lucas Hedges' version like goes to that trailer or whatever to 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 find him. So it's it, it's it's a lot going on at once, but I think it uh, I, I don't know I think I think they all it it it, it really does uh, largely pull it off. Um, uh, what we didn't really mention much about like the him interacting with that, with, with that girl, which I guess in the, on the cast list, they just refer to her as shy girl, uh, at, at the motel. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what did you make of that? It was, it was almost uncomfortable for a minute the way it looked like they were going to take it. Cause she was like a lot older than him, but then it, it doesn't go where you think it might be going. And it's like, I think it's just really shows how important it was for him just to have another per- normal person in his life.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, FKA Twigs. She's you know, Twigs is she's great. Um, what, are, what is she? I'm, what is
0: she mostly known for? Is she like a, a rapper or a singer? She, or? Yeah,
1: she's a musician. She's okay. a she's a singer. Um, she's also a, a believe a, a classically trained ballet dancer huh. and uh, perhaps a, a jazz dancer. Maybe one of the I, I believe she's classically trained ballet though, and she has had some appearances as a. Uh, as a dancer and things like, she was in. Um, uh, there was a music video slash ad for uh, Apple for um, Anderson Paak's song uh, "Till It's Over" gotcha. that was that was uh, done by by uh, Spike Jones, hmm. and uh, she does a you know kind of avant garde dance in that and was really you know, great and expressive, but, um, it was cool to see her, you know, in another acting role, which very much obviously required her to be more expressive necessarily than an actress per se. She doesn't have a lot of, you know, spoken lines, but, um, I liked that a lot. I liked that there was sort of this, like you said, there was this almost uncomfortable misunderstanding about what was going on there. Um, we don't really know what her motivations were, uh, you know, they both just want some normalcy at the end of the day in their lives. And that was the way that they found it, it was not necessarily in, you know, a very uh, <laughs> awkward, perhaps illegal, you know, relationship, but more in just they just wanted to be, you know, to have a have a sense of, of closeness and interpersonal interaction. And I, I really loved, you know, uh, when she's leaving and or I don't maybe she's not leaving yet, but uh, Noah Jupe gives her money. Hmm. Um, and it's a really, it's sad and, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's really sad and, um, you know, it's, he doesn't understand what that looks like to her, uh, to yeah. him, he's paying her because she was, you know, that's the only way that he knows how to show gratitude, how to show gratitude. Yeah. and he didn't want her, you know, he, he wasn't thinking about it from that pers- from the perspective of him, like paying for a prostitute. He was thinking about it of, she was like a mother to me, even if just for a few hours, she right. just, you know, gave me a hug and and we sat together and it felt like, you know, having a person who actually cared. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only way that he knows how to show gratitude for that. And I thought that was, it was, you know, really, uh, you know, rend- rending. It was very, uh, you know, heart rending.
0: I agree. I thought, um, that stuff was was pretty well done and I, it was very touching, and I just think it spoke to like how much it might important it might be for someone like that, like a child star like that, to like actually, yeah, you know, have have normal presence in their lives if they're surrounded by like screwed up stage parents. I I, we, I briefly brushed over that scene with um. Uh, clifton collins and uh where he they have the fight out by the pool and i just i i, I just want to shout out to him for a second and also to that scene in general like it, that was like incredibly tense and well acted and uh and i mean as i mentioned like you're, you're kind of aware that this guy is like a bit of a loose cannon and i i just thought that it, it that really it really built up to that scene uh very well and i i i, I just i i just appreciated it and that was one of my favorite scenes in the movie just to like kind of were just really told you a lot about uh, what what Otis's dad was actually like and how he just really had to live in fear of like connecting with the wrong people and I thought it was just a very it was a very informative scene uh, were there any other parts of this movie that I didn't touch on that uh, you wanted to delve into
1: no and I will say I really I did like that scene as well mm-hmm. i I felt that you know for me I don't think that the father the James Lord the Shia Buffs character is is a good guy but it's sort of like he doesn't know how, you know, how to be a good guy. Because he genuinely thinks seem- he's
0: doing. He genuinely seems to think he's doing everything right.
1: He, right, he does, and you know, and that in and of itself is, is certainly a problem. But I, I thought that that scene with Clifton Collins was really, um, it's it's touching and frightening because yeah, he is a loose cannon. You have no idea what he's going to do. But he's, you have to understand that from his perspective, he feels like he's being supplanted as a father. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand why his son needs guidance like that. Why his son needs somebody to, you know, to watch out for him and to help him. Um, all that he views that as is somebody trying to do his job for him, and when you look at it from this perspective, that he feels like he's failed at all of his jobs in his life, and this is the only job he has an an opportunity to succeed at, it's really tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that ending, you know, uh, we haven't really done spoiler alerts for anything here, but I guess you kind of have to you know, just assume.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, If you don't want to hear someone talk about the final scene, I guess go away now though. It's largely an autobiographical story, so I don't think there's a ton to spoil, but you can talk about whatever you want to talk about with the ending.
1: Yeah. I mean, I felt like the ending was a really ephemeral and beautiful thing where, you know, James, the father, Shia LaBeouf's father, he, he was, he was self-absorbed and he made things hard for his son. And, at the end of the day, what he really cares about is he just wants people to like him. He wants he wants people to view him positively. And you know, this is a guy who screwed up so much, uh, and he's not really sure how to get back to that square one. And um, I liked that, even though the movie, even though I think he is kind of obviously the energetic center of the film, mm-hmm. Shia LaBeouf, the father. Uh, the movie is really about Shia LaBeouf, Lucas Hedges uh, learning to forgive his father for what he did, even if his father never asked for forgiveness, you know,
0: right.
1: you just sort of have to, you know, and that's why I made the comparison to two popes earlier. It is very oh, much a, yeah. fil- a film about absolution and about, about forgiveness, uh, for sins imagined or real. And mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, that this movie had a really beautiful ending in that regard where, uh, you know, Lucas Hedges doesn't, doesn't, erase him from his life he learns how to carry him on his back he learns how to carry that burden without it being a uh you know something that that's going to destroy him right um and i felt that the symbolism of that of them riding together on the motorcycle with the roles reversed because we see them riding on the mm-hmm. motorcycle before but it is uh you know him as a child noah jupe riding with his father um you know and him holding on his father's back um And this notion that he feels like maybe he 's a burden to his father, and at the end, we finally get this reversal where it's you know he is he is learning to carry his father you know and and that and that regard, so
0: yeah it's very very uh certainly very fitting and very touching and a really cool image and uh just shout out to alma Harel again because this movie like looks really great and I, I i really wasn't as familiar with her work even as as you were before this and i'm certainly excited to see her hopefully get to do some more cool stuff soon uh, i gotta go watch the eagles elijah so we gotta we we, we, we we got we gotta end things here but before we sign off do you have anything you want to plug whether it be your letterbox or social media or anything going on on turner or anything else you want people to be watching right now
1: yeah, man. Um, uh, we got HBO Max is our uh, new streaming service that's going to arrive early in 2020. So new year, new streaming service, new us. We're looking forward to uh, having everybody there. It's going to be a lot of content on there from HBO, Turner, as well as from the Warner Brothers uh, movie library. Uh, Show wise, Snowpiercer. It's going to be on TNT. Uh, I forgot there was a the thing that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that's going to be with David Diggs and Jennifer Connelly. And, uh, it's going to be a thrilling new, uh, new, uh, adventure in the, uh, the world created by, uh, the comic book writers and by Bong Joon-ho, uh, from the 2013 movie. So
0: awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Cause I, I for, I knew that was a thing that was happening, but I didn't realize it was coming anytime soon. And, uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, as usual, you can, uh, catch me on Twitter at Josh Chernovoy J O S H J U R at same name on letterboxd and podcast. Twitter is rewind movie pod podcast. Gmail is rewind movie pod at gmail.com. And I forgot to say at the beginning, Elijah, but assuming I put this up in the order, I have a couple other things I've recorded at this point. Assuming I put this up after both of those, this is our hundredth episode. So, uh, thanks to everyone that's listened to this point and i appreciate everyone that has uh that ever uh reaches out to me and gives me thoughts on the podcast and uh gives me ideas and shares what their thoughts are on movies because that's what this is all about so thanks to everyone for listening for the last year and a half uh thanks to elijah for joining me as he does uh regularly and has done consistently and i appreciate his time as always and uh stay tuned for whatever's next because i'm going to be finishing out oscar season with whatever else is coming out so you've heard a lot of me talk about a lot of that stuff to this point but this still a few things left to clean up so i'll be talking about everything that gets nominated for oscars or is in the discussion so everyone stay tuned for that and we'll see you next time